Hello. This is the September 1st DevOps Lunch and Learn, and we talked about IPv6 with Ed Horley. Oh my God, amazing conversation that went deep, deep in the weeds about how networking works, especially with IPv6. So check it out. If you're interested in more of these, please come events.the2030.cloud, and you can see what's going on. We have biweekly sessions and a great community spinning up online. Well, I guess uh, the easy background on me is, uh, I guess the other the other way I go by is crazy IPv6 dude. So I'm the co-chair for the California V6 Task Force, been on the North American V6 Task Force for, for many years. Um, wrote a book about IPv6, not that anyone would read it, but you know, that's a different issue. <laughs> and then um, still actively involved with a lot of it. And, and the company I helped uh, co-found is uh, intimately involved in, in IPv6 for deployment for basically I guess I would say sort of the Fortune 1000 federal and state institutions here in the United States, although we do do work with some nation states too around uh, just helping to get their national infrastructure up and going around IPv6. And that's sort of where I spend the day to day. So it's much more in architecture, probably design uh, a little bit on the, the implementation side and, and labbing and then really try and help our customers sort of uh, get to the operational model so that they learn how to do it themselves versus us doing it because for a Fortune 1000, you'll get sucked into a project for the next five years deploying IPv6. <laughs> you actually have to do the work yourself. So, so we really try and uh, you know, teach them to fish as it would be around v6 and then move on to the next customer. That's probably what sort of on the day-to-day -day side. And then I know Rob, we were talking about uh, v6 as it relates to things around like sort of containers and cloud and, and edge and how, you know, IPv6 might have some impacts in, in those areas in a similar way to it's maybe had in terms of large scale public cloud providers and, and IOT and, uh, and obviously for the sort of consumer, you know, consumer uh, service provider side and what impact it's had there. I don't know, that's probably just sort of opening salvo, but I don't know what, what you would like to dive into first in terms of talking points. We can have fun with math. <laughs> Well, right uh, you, I mean, you and I talked through some very pragmatic, you know, ways that IPv6 is usable without rewriting the universe. And I thought that that was a really interesting, you know, um, I thought that was really interesting. I'm going to find the tweet that provoked the thread and, and post it if, some, if people want to sort of see some of where that thread went. Um, but I would start with just, you know, what, you know, very real ways that IPv6 helps with, with cloud migrations and, and legacy, sort of this legacy migration, because I think that helps people reframe, the, you know, the... Yeah, I, I think the two discussions we get into often is how can v6 actually help my business versus just being this cost center of like yet another thing I have to do, but I don't gain any structural business advantage out of it or things like that. The ones that we've had that have been interesting have been for companies that are larger that are dealing with a lot of merger and acquisition. They deal with IPv6 as a strategic tool and they will deploy v6 in something like AWS. And you're like, why would you start an AWS with your IPv6 journey? And the reason why is because you could deploy a set of services inside of AWS and then basically build Direct Connect or VPN Interconnect with IPv6 and then allow you to actually use v6 as the native transport back and forth. What's nice about that is, is it really gives you the capability to then pivot. And if you acquire a company, 
have them deploy their services in IPv6 within AWS and not have to change any of their existing v4. And so you don't really have to deal with, you know, overlapping RFC 1918 or weird NAT translations or trying to figure out how to integrate that, that, that company into your environment. You're not wasting IT resources and people to basically go back and renumber everything in the IPv4 world. And so you, you, you get away from the brittleness that NAT and a single choke point with state puts into your network. And then you also gain the advantage of not having to go back and renumber and touch every single resource. You can just simply move forward and say, deploy your resources inside our V6 only uh, portion of our VPC. We'll tie you in with V6. And it just sort of gives you a migration path moving forward. The other nice thing about that is you can build obviously a separate VPC for each one of the related services uh, or companies that you acquire. And you can just hand that V6 address block away with that company when you need to walk away. So you just do a 48 allocation, hand it away when you need to spin them back out again if for any given reason that needs to happen. So it's really flexible that way. So that's one way that we've seen customers start and then they actually take from the VPC moving back into their corporate network, that's how they start to transition turning up their own data center for IPv6. They may not turn on V6 in the client access portion of their network until they get the data center related solution problem solved. And they can just simply use, you know, NAP 4.6 and NAT 6.4 to be able to solve the back and forth problem, or they can use SIT or one of the other transition technologies to sort of handle that from a client access side to get to this to the server resources that are running in either AWS or uh, in their own data center. So it, it becomes a nice sort of mid mid approach around that. And then for scale up, obviously it's it's very attractive because you're you're no longer constrained in terms of how many uh, server resources you're running in any given you know subnet. Um, you don't have this weird design pattern of trying to carve down v4 addresses into weird slash 29, 28, 27s, and trying to keep track of what the subnet is for each one of those and how that works in your automation framework is becomes more painful. So, um, so I think it's it's much easier just to do a 64 everywhere and be done with it. I mean, out of a 48 delegation you give, you got 65,536 slash 64s. You can allocate each one of them can hold the existing v4 internet squared in it. I think you've got enough host <laughs> IPs to be able to solve any of your given related problems. And, and that's, you know, on a long-term basis, that's also where I see things happening in, in sort of the container and ecosystem around Kubernetes, right? I mean, today you can only, you can't run dual stack Kubernetes, but you can run v6 only if you want to want to be able to go that way. And there's some interesting things to talk about, about what you can gain just by having globally unique addresses for all of that. And then I think the other one that's really interesting is the edge model of being able to give global, global unique addresses, global unique and routable addresses to every single resource that you have. So if you have disparate edge providers, you can do an overlay with V6 for your own address range on top of what they are providing to you from a route perspective to access the actual bare metal or virtual machine environment. And then you can assign your own IP on top of that and extend it any way you want. So you can do, you know, EVPN with VXLAN, right? And extend L2 technology all the way out to the edge, or you can just do it as straight, you know, layer three routed, depending on what your preference is or what your, what your topology requirements are. And it gives you a lot of flexibility and it gives you scale. So you don't have to worry about your routing being broken in any, in any, in any fashion. That's, that's just quick starting points. I don't know what you think, Rob, in terms of, you know, where things are at. I, I do think <laughs> Kubernetes is sort of, I think Kubernetes is sort of broken in the dual stack arena and we don't have to 
you know, go too much in, the, in depth in, in terms of where it sits there. I mean, it's great single stack for V4, although you're dealing with all the NAT and weirdness. You have to choose to go routed mode and hopefully you've got enough RC 1918 space left over to be able to do that in your data center. Otherwise, you're doing weird NAT stuff and Istio with sidecard loading and hoping all of that's going to work the way you think it's going to. Uh, and I know I know Istio and Envoy are sort of broken for dual stack because there's a bunch of services that don't work. Like Prometheus won't work if you're if you're trying to dual stack a, um, a Kubernetes deployment, right? Because it's it doesn't register the services correctly in Istio, so it doesn't it'll see that it has v4 and it won't respond back with the v6, and so it can't do service discovery appropriately. There's 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 a bunch of known issues around that, right? So yeah, I mean, I there's a when I think about Kubernetes, a lot of it ends up, you end up with a gateway to your cluster anyway. So I mean, conceivably you could just say, I don't care. Just like you were saying this, so this is where the, the things intersect, right? You're, you're saying, look, I can isolate legacy interfaces into a V6. It's pretty easy to make things, you know, listen on a V6 address. They don't really know that they're listening on anything different. They just get the traffic. Right. Um, and so, you know, it, on the surface, it seems to me like converting a, a Kubernetes cluster to V6 should be pretty trivial. Your gate, your your natting, it's not natting, but you're, you're you've got to trap all the traffic goes through a gateway anyway. Yeah, so you have different modes that you can do. You know, multi-network. You could do see so if you do multi-network across multiple clusters. The nice thing about V6 is you get something globally unique, so service discovery becomes a little bit easier in terms of how that maps through. But you're st you're right, you're still going through a gateway. Uh, to control how that does and how that works. And then if you're actually doing sidecar, then you have a whole different issue to deal with in terms of that service discovery and how that plays out. But could you sidecar out each? Uh, so, I mean, the, the real question, maybe this is, this is the underlying theme. If I put, if I switch over to V6, how much re-architecture do those, these apps need, right? Are, are applications breaking when you, Put, you know that you start sending them v6 traffic how how deep does does that i think it really just uh, yeah it really just thinks it's it's a matter of how well and what sort of libraries they adopted for the for the software to support that but the operating system shouldn't barf they shouldn't have a problem with with any of that in terms of you know the v6 side uh, at least that hasn't been my experience to date i have i haven't seen every single os in, in the planet being rolled out that way though so so i think your mileage may vary but uh, at least from a client OS perspective and server OS perspective for the, for the mass majority, that's not much of an issue in terms of supporting V6 at all. I don't know, you know, Rob, I think that's probably been your experience too, right? To a great degree. Um, uh, there, for us, I mean, at the hardware level, there's protocols that can't even handle HTTPS, let alone V6. Um, yeah, yeah, obviously for, if, so, you're, if you're still doing bootload or boot P stuff, you're going to have challenges around how some of that stuff works, but most of the time that stuff's wrapped for you for anything like Kubernetes in a container ecosystem, unless you're doing bare metal, like what you're up to. Part, yeah. of, part, of, part of the reason that we reached out to get you on, on the uh, discussion was, um, I keep, I'm, I almost said show, it's funny. Um, but part of the reason was we were talking about um, NF, NF tables and networking config and mm -hmm. you know, sort of the, the whole idea of Docker not being able to move because they built, you know, hooks, deep hooks into NF tables configurations. Yeah. Um, 
and then IPv6, which I felt like could bypass some of that. It's but it's a completely different stack. Um, yeah, I mean, it depends on what operating system. It's not a different stack for Windows, right? For Windows, it's a uh, Windows is a dual IP is a dual IP stack. So it actually, you know, uh, TCP and UDP are shared across IPv4 and IPv6, and then uh, for 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 how that sort of works. So it's actually impossible to turn off IPv4 and it's impossible, the reverse is true, it's impossible to turn off v6 for Windows in the current implementation since uh, since Windows Vista, since Vista in 2008 R2, when, it, when the rewrite happened, um, that the, you know, Dave Thaler basically said TCP IP version four, version six, we're gonna put a single IP set within, within the chimney for, for that hourglass curve of where we constrain IP, right? And so those two work together. So in Windows, you actually can't turn V4 off, you can't turn V6 off. You can very limit its scope, but you can't actually turn it off in the implementation uh, within the operating system. So it's always possible to ping and, and get a service to run on colon colon one. And the same is true for 127.001, even if you wanted to do a V6 only stack. Now it's it's different on, on, on Linux and on, on in terms of how that implementation works. And so that's that's part of the oddball behavior differences that you might see in regards to what operating system you choose to deploy on. And then the other thing that's a, a little different is whether they're conformant with source destination address selection processes. So that's RFC 6724. So that's actually how you're sourcing and going to a destination. And if you have older operating systems that aren't current, you're gonna have different sets of prefixes that you're gonna match to for source and destination, um, which can get interesting because if you uh, mistakenly think that you want to run ULA, uh, which is unique local addresses, IPv6 unique local addresses for a cluster for any given reason, uh, you're going to get a different set of behavior on older operating systems than newer operating systems. Hey, that um, sounds scary. Yeah, it's it's. I, I wouldn't say it's scary. It's just something practical that you have to know because. Um, for instance, ULA, which is unique local addresses for those that may not know this, uh, unique local addresses in, v in V6, they're not global addresses that are, can be used generically across the internet at, at large. Some people put analogies to RFC 1918, but it's not quite accurate. Um, and uh, ULA is, the, the big challenge with it is that in the, the operating system order, if it's current using 6724, ULA is, is less preferred than IPv4. So if you have IPv4 on the host operating system, it's gonna use its IPv4 interface before it's gonna use its ULA address. It'll use its V4 address before its ULA address. Um, just because of preference orders within the operating system about what oh, 6724 okay. dictates. If you have a global unicast address for, v, for V6, it will use that first. That's the preference, it's first to use that. And then it goes through this sequence list of what addresses to prefer, you know, tunnel translation addresses and what order those go in. Those have all been moved to the bottom, just like ULA. So they're like, they're, they're less preferred. You don't every want to time, use tunnel. Every addresses. time I think I understand networking, uh, I have a conversation <laughs> with somebody like you and it totally makes me realize I'm like just at the beginning of my networking journey. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's just, it, basically you can think of it as a, as a policy order list that basically says, what's my preference? If I have multiple addresses and multiple address families on a host operating system, something has to make a decision about what which ones are picked in the order, right? So this is going uh, to it, it makes everything. it makes 
total sense to me. I guess there's a, you know, when I think about this, and this is sort of where that Twitter thread was going with somebody said, oh, I just, I don't, you know, I don't need IPv6. I'm just going to put a NAT gateway in front of it and not worry about it. Like they're, they're drawing, I, I described it as drawing moats around their, their data center and hoping that things stay and, you know, don't cross the moat. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what, what you're describing to me is, you know, sort of ends up being like, all right, if I, I can, I can ignore V6 a whole bunch. Maybe oh, so this about is all about simply. Yeah. No, I mean, this is all about operator models. So operators need to understand this stuff. Architect folks need to understand this stuff. Application folks don't necessarily need to understand this stuff as long as the operators are understanding what the, what the behavior sets are going to be within the box or, or the platform and how that's going to work. And they need to be able to articulate that in the architecture. So for me, I look at it and say, hmm. uh, an app, application developer doesn't care whether a resource of, of, let's say you're developing a mobile phone app and your app is being distributed across whatever framework you do, whether that's Amazon or whether that's on-prem or whatever you're going to be doing for a hosted service to, to run your mobile app. Your app developer doesn't care if the person who's running around is on T-Mobile and on IPv6 only on an iPhone handset nor do they care if they're on an Android handset running 646xLab because T-Mobile can only support V6 on their backbone, right, for, for what they're providing versus another provider who may be providing, you know, IPv4, right? What they should care about is that they can get connectivity appropriately and that they can handle the export headers and they can handle all the data types that might come into them, right? And so that's the architecture discussion. Did we architect our application to appropriately take in the right resources, have the right data structures to be able to support v4, v6 from a discovery model, right? Um, but once they're past that, do they get to control whether the inbound resource connects via v4, v6? Not really, right? So they just want to make sure that the service is available on both, whether that's handled through a server load balancer, whether that's handled through a transition set of technologies, or whether that's an IPv4 only framework for them or IPv6 only framework for them is not super relevant. I mean, it can be relevant depending on what the service is that they provide, but Facebook has pretty much proven you can run V6 only data center and no one knows the difference, even though they're running around on IPv4 networks all day long. Um, uh, so the only place that you see major hiccups uh, on an ongoing basis is enterprise customers who have large scale VPN requirements where the services that they operate operate in their data center, but they haven't provided any V6 connectivity via their VPN. And so when they, they get, you know, what I consider like the, you know, V6 breakout. Um, so they don't, they don't encapsulate and send the VPN traffic across, you know, natively across their VPN. And so you can get some weird issues if you're trying to do stuff there. Um, but outside of that, I mean, I don't think the application folks really care what networking protocol you come across and utilize. Um, except for maybe on a performance basis, right? Of, you know, and that, and that, that's sort of the next layer up of like saying like, hey, I want to utilize quick and do everything UDP, right? They're much more concerned about performance. I think network performance and, and, okay. and availability and how that's exposed and maybe some privacy related things around, you know, do I do dot and do in order to provide more privacy and do I publish that way? And does my app honor dot and do or do I do that myself within my own app so that, you know, their local service provider can't even see the DNS namespace requests that are going outbound, right? What do you, I, all right, you lost me at dot oh, and do. Oh, sorry, DNS over TLS or DNS over uh, HTTPS. Okay. 
so DNS over TLS is dot and DOE is DNS over HTTPS, right? <laughs> okay. So that's dot and DOE. And so you can, you can if your app is, is natively aware of dot and DOE and you have your own name services that you want to utilize, you can wrap your DNS lookups, like what services you're looking up inside a secure session that then allows you to, to abstract that away. You can do that over V4 or V6, it doesn't matter. And so you could build a much more secure, robust app that maybe the service provider no longer has visibility in terms of what app services you're actually using, right? So this becomes a really mm -hmm. unique value proposition for, for those that are on networks that may not be as secure, right? Or folks that are, that are doing extensive, you know, sort of monitoring and looking at the traffic types that you're doing. Wait, so, so the, your, the idea is that if you're using, DH, if you're using DNS over HTTP or, T, or TLS, then that is effectively hiding the DNS traffic that a lot of these characters. Well, to, are. yeah, today, I mean, all your DNS is in clear text, right? It's yeah. you do a DNS, you do a dig for whatever that that goes across the wire. Your service provider can look in that packet payload and know exactly what you know namespace you're looking for. And then you know, mm -hmm. if you're if you're still doing clear HTTP, they could actually see the URLs you're looking for and what put and you know what you know put and get <laughs> calls are happening back and forth. So we secured that side. We made TLS available on the HTTP side, right? To secure your web browsing for transactions, but we never secured the lookup portion. That's what dot and do were all about. Okay. So for an app developer standpoint, you could, you could embed inside your app and say, Hey, I only want secure DNS. I don't want my, I don't want my handset and I don't want my service provider to know what, what that client is doing, even though they may be running an app that I'm providing, I don't need them to look up if I'm, providing ad lookups or any other thing inside of there, there's no reason for the provider to know anything about that, right? So I can, I can obscure that and provide the lookup to happen from a name resolution standpoint directly in there. And that's why I'm saying the application folks, as long as they're aware of these sets of hooks and components, they can control a lot about how their mobile app actually works. From right. but those aren't, v, those aren't V6 specific. Those aren't V6 are specific, but that's what I'm saying is V6 doesn't, they don't care at that point whether it's the transport's happening over V6 or V4. And as long as they have 464XLAT, uh, either built on the handset for Android to okay. solve that issue, or they're on a provider and they can support, you know, you know, DNS64, NAT64, they're fine. Well, that's a pretty simple check for my application state. If they can support SIT, even better, right? Um, so if they can do stateless IP and IP translation, right? And that's going from V4 to V6, V6 to V4. I don't know if everyone's familiar with SIT, but it's a pretty cool set of technologies, but it's all stateless. And that's what's attractive about it is that un unlike DNS64 and NAT64, where we have to keep state and we're tied to a single sort of endpoint or entry point, SIT allows us to be much, uh, uh, much more robust in terms, of, in terms of what we can provide from a stateless basis to scale up for service providers. The downside is if you're not familiar with if, if your app isn't familiar or doesn't know how to deal necessarily with the state within the protocol, right, then you're going to have okay. some, some challenges. So if you're trying to run classic FTP, for instance, or something else that is embedding, you know, most of the, most of the SIP protocol, right, until they built fix-ups for, for SIP, you know, we're embedding all the IP address information directly in the protocol headers, right? right. So you're going to break there because you're going from V4 to V6. You're sending a V6 host, an IPv4 address, and it's in a SIP fix up, it's not gonna know what to do with that, right? Because it's talking V6, it's like, I, I don't understand, right? So are these components, and if people have questions break in, I'm, I've 
so I, I just wanted to yeah i just wanted to do a recap of what was just stated and that, and that is that as an application developer there is no there is little need to understand ipv4 versus ipv6 during the application development and that the more important stuff is whether you're going to do your dns uh, within the app or rely on uh, through Doe and, and Dot or rely so, on the service providers uh, going through clear space with DNS, strictly DNS. And then there are some legacy uh, bits and pieces that application developers use such as FTP that would get confused because of state within IPv4 and IPv6. But SIP, if it's mature enough to be used, takes care of that also. So is that a correct summary of, uh, yeah, I think, of what was just stated? Yeah, I think, I think the, the early part of saying that they don't have to be concerned about it. And you definitely want to have a conversation in the architecture portion to make sure that you're not doing something like you know, building, if you're capturing, you know, IPv4 information right today and you fix the field size for any given reason, 32 bits, right, to, to store it, and you're suddenly getting v6 information that's 128 bits, you're going to have a structural problem, right? You're not going to be able to stuff 128 bits into right. 32 bits of data storage. So there's some cleanup in terms of just making sure that uh, your your database structures or your, your you know, your your field sets, maybe part of your UI might have to be, have to accommodate some of this and logging information. I would say most of the mature logging platforms, uh, you know, Splunk, you know, Ingestion, Prometheus, Grafana, whatever you're gonna use to, to graph out, they all display things correctly. I think the hard part is the matching case conditions. There's some weird things about, about uh, some, if, if you're a hardcore operator, Here's a good example. If you're a hardcore operator and you're using, you know, VMware's NSX today, right? The way they do BGP string matching is actually on the string, <laughs> not on the number. So they don't convert the V6 address to 120 bit value and then match on that. They're matching on the string. Well, the problem is, is that if you're using, you know, mm -hmm. zero compressed addresses, Rob, <laughs> right? and you're not fully expanding it, you're not going to match on the string and you're not gonna inject things into the BGP route table correctly. So there's like weird things like that. Now this is obviously an operator related issue, but the app folks are still not gonna see that. Um, so there's weird things where your application developers need to be aware, hey, and they should be ingesting these values as, 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 as integer values anyway for the addresses that they're storing for V4 today. They probably should, shouldn't be storing them as strings, right? Uh, for the simple reason that you know, there's plenty of conversion libraries that will handle this for you. And the reason why is because you run into exactly this problem. When you're trying to match a V6 address, right? Fully qualified or fully expanded V6 address, these libraries will handle that for you. So if you get a, a zero compressed one or you get something that's, you know, has some zeros removed, right? For compression reasons, you're, you're gonna get the fully expanded address and you're gonna match correctly. Otherwise you have to write a really nasty regex <laughs> the expression match in order to in order to get everything to match up, um, which is doable. I mean, there's ones that are ex available as examples out there, but I think you're far better just to match it as a as the appropriate 120-bit integer that it actually is, right? Um, sort of go from there. 
so really what you're saying is is there's lots of complexity and whatnot but if you for but for the application developer if you future proof your application by uh, matching a checklist of you do this you do the translations you do these things and here are the list of gotchas uh, the the key is is that architects and operators uh, either need to know about these things or will discover these things and so there there is a way to future proof applications without let without having to have the applications developers worry about uh, all the intricacies of the IPv6, IPv4 uh, convolutions. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, we've done, a, there's been a tremendous amount of work in, in the V6 community to try and make it easier for, for application folks to be able to adopt V6 for obvious reasons. And I think the biggest challenge, challenges usually for just going over the architecture portion early is the fact that the host operating system can have multi, you know, they're so used to, to, to systems only having a singular IPv4 address, and that's not the case with v6. v6, you have link local addresses, and then you have, you know, a global unicast address. You can have multiple global unicast addresses uh, potentially, and so how do you handle those? There's a different set of uh, of precedence orders that you have to sort of consider when you want to open a socket, and which one do you bind to, and like which one do you, you know, do you actually utilize, and which ones are used by default by the operating system in order to make a call versus not, and how do you sort of designate that. But those are all things that if you address early on for, for them in terms of if anyone's still writing apps with global little socket calls, I don't know <laughs> how many folks are really doing that, but but you can control all of those parameters. And then secondarily, there's a set of, of sort of rules around, you know, rules of the road around just sort of the global uniqueness and the sizing scopes of, of V6 around default prefix sizes and things like that that once they get the hang of that, it's actually easier than before. So it's, I think that becomes a very simple thing, relatively trivial for them to, to understand and pick up. Um, and then the weirdest one is just routing is routing, finally. Like we get back to just being able to route as, uh, and, and have everything in the routing table as opposed to the weirdness of like, yeah, all those addresses have to get steered to this state box to get translated to something else. And if that box goes down, we're hosed because all the state was being kept in there and everything's going to have to restart. So your application needs to be aware of that. So you have to build all these restarts within the application to check and do heartbeats and make sure that things are still alive. And the reality is that's one of the great advantages of IPv6 for things like IoT is that you can have something just go to sleep and sleep for a long period of time without having to worry and then just come back up and just send its packet payload and not have to worry about state someplace else in the network unless you choose to run a stateful firewall which is you know you know not a horrible thing but in terms of just running an internal v6 network you don't have to worry as much about uh, those related services it's definitely more flexible um, i don't know it, this is this is actually where i was interested in in the conversation going to in the last last bit is sort of, you know, you've been describing things that make it not a big deal to commingle or mix. I, I love to go back and think through, all right, but what if we did say we were going to be IPv6 only, right? One of our first conversations about this um, was, you know, you could have containers that have 
you know, even if even after they're gone, you have enough addresses that you could, you know, do a container, you know, an, IP, an IP address per container for the for a year, two years on a box, and never exhaust the containers, right? Never exhaust the, you know, the yeah. If you do a sixty-four um, per masks, yeah. If you do a sixty-four per can, you know, per server to hand out to the containers, or, or multiples, a single sixty-four. If you did, let's say, an application built. 10 million sockets of, or that wanted to have an individual IP address, V6 address associated with them, 10 million a second. Uh, the math, if you do the back of the envelope math and you have a 64, it's going to take you over 58,000 years to burn through your SOS 64. So I don't know a lot of people that can start 10 million IPs on a single host in a second anyway. Like that's really hard to do just from a memory standpoint and instantiation standpoint, but then to do it every single second and never reuse an address, but uh, it's possible to do and you would never, I, mean, I don't think most people think their data center is going to be here in a hundred years, never mind 58,000 years. Um, so, you know, running a service that way is, is trivial. And I think that shows sort of the power of, of having such a, you know, uh, a huge resource pool available to you is that, you know, you could build it per transaction if you wanted to, you could literally build Let's say you have a mobile app and you want a single transaction to go on from that mobile app back to the server source. You could you could make that a single v6 address on on the server side, redirect to that, mm -hmm. finish the transaction. And granted, it may have a bunch of transactions back and forth, but that single flow, right, would be exist only for that point in time and only have a single v6 address. And then after that, just get rid of it, never reuse that address again, right? Just blow it away. And, and this becomes important because if you have that edge model that we talked about earlier, if like if you want to do edge computing, you, this is absolutely supportable from an edge computing model. There's no reason that you couldn't make every single unique session transaction and, and do it that way. It would take, you know, there's no way you're going to burn through the, the 64. You can assign multiple 64s based off of customer. They have that same possibility per customer to build as many session transactions as they want. It, it'll take them more than their lifetime of application to burn through the address range. Can you have multiple multiple V6 IPs on a on the same machine? So like I could have a personal yeah. 64 and, and say, yeah, all of my devices, I don't trust them unless they're talking on my on my my address. And then yeah, you could do it. You could build that as an still have. Yeah, you could build that as an overlay network, Rob. So you could have a set of underlay infrastructure that's running on, on the service providers IPv6 network, right? Okay. So that's how you tunnel to get to the transport and then you can provide a transport overlay that puts a set of 64 addresses on that host with you know or or a singular 128 address on there if you wanted to but okay. you're just building a tunnel overlay network at that point that doesn't look any different than mpls evpn anything else that you would want to run and you can run that address there and then you can say i will only accept sessions from that host coming from that address because that it, it strikes me that when you know we're spending we, we have all these little you know puddles of of v of v4 domains and mm -hmm. you know but you know when we look at edge and distributed infrastructure then it's a, it's still a, a single infrastructure and the idea that i'm gonna have traffic coming at me and being like i you know, hopefully it's natted correctly and, and everything I'm figuring it out, but I, I don't know inherently when I get talked to where, you know, that it's from the device I think it's coming from, or if it's coming to me, I can't infer from the, from its address where, where it's actually talking to me from. 
Right. I mean, it's, most people handle certificates with that. I would still recommend mm. even with V6, you still handle it with certificates. That gives you a piece okay. of additional information. But it's very easy then to write an ACL within your environment that basically says, I'm only trusting this 48 or I'm only trusting this 32 network. It's my address block. So if I have my command and control plane sitting inside of AWS, running inside of a VPC with my address range, and it goes out and reaches out to my edge component to, to spin up or do whatever control plane work it needs to do for that remote edge, you're only gonna take that traffic. It's a super simple access list to write then at that point. In addition, you should have a certificate on there that says I'm the valid resource to, to go and do that. You can use whatever key management sort of infrastructure you want, you know, whatever HashiCorp vault and you know, go crazy on doing all of that. But yeah. um, We've, we, like, that's what that's a that's a recurring topic for us, and we, we need to actually get a speaker to come in and talk more about TLS dynamic yeah. TLS uh, process. But I, I mean, a lot of the TLS stuff I see still requires you to have a DNS entry. Are you suggesting you just do TLS um, to the V6 address? And, and you can still have it. So you can you can do both. So the thing is, is that the very fast ACL that you can write, right? You, you can write a very fast, clean one that basically says, I only talk to other network resources that are on my prefix. Right. I've got a 32. I only talk to the other things on 32. For command and control, that's it. It's the only thing I'll ever accept a session. <laughs> right. It's a subnet mask, but it's global subnet mask, effectively. Right. Yeah. But it, it doesn't matter because I can take my 32, divide it all up, and maybe I'm handing out a bunch of 48s to Amazon, a bunch of 48s to Azure, because I can do bring my own addressing, right? right? So I can run a resource inside that VPC with my own address space. When it goes and reaches out and wants to talk to my command and control at the edge, I just simply say, if it's not coming from that, from that address range, forget it, I won't talk to you. Right. So, so it's then you very clean, very simple, super simple from a logging basis. It's a very simple from a protection basis for the operator roles this is the way you want things. Otherwise, you have to set up all this complexity around namespace, authentication, and, and, and a bunch of other components that you have to rely on because you have to accept sessions from anywhere, right? Or you have to be coming through a nap and a state piece of state information. The, the nice thing about the, the infrastructure we're talking about, we don't care if Amazon comes across a VPN connection to connect to me or whether it just goes straight out with BGP peering goes straight out to the public V6 internet, comes straight into the public V6 internet side on the service provider side and hits my resource, doesn't matter. I don't care which way it comes across. As long as it's coming from the right address, I'm good to go. And so and, that, that, and then that, and then you throw TLS in there and then it's signed by a private a private cert. Right. And at that, you know, that's not that different really than having a VPN in the middle. If you've this this has been the the thing that makes me frustrated with the lack of private cert management is right if if you're encrypting your traffic with private certs then you know and you're only accepting tra traffic on that cert and only from the ip range ipv4 range v6 range that we're talking about you know it's basically a vpn between two devices yeah i mean it's the thing is is you can you can choose you can choose how your devices are dynamically associating. The other nice thing about this is that is that those NAT and state boundaries where you're constraining yourself, if they yeah. because of the brittleness of them, you know. <laughs> yeah. The nice thing is that you can have multiple command and controls that are sitting in different locations. They all just transparently talk to each other, because you're not constrained mm -hmm. in the same way. So the nice thing about that is that 
um, you know, you can, you, you can, you can choose not to go through a gateway in order to get to other services, which means your edge to edge connectivity is direct. It's peer to peer. It's not, doesn't have to go through a proxy, right. right? Of another gateway in some other location in order to VPN. I don't have a weird hub and spoke, or I don't have a full mesh configuration. I'm having to manage. No, you just got V6 internet connectivity. You're good to go. And, and, and that, that becomes very this, this, I mean, but that is, that's a great example from an edge perspective where, you know, we've been fighting on Twitter about tromboning. And it's like part of the reason you trombone is because you don't actually know where the traffic's coming coming from and to. Um, yeah, and so the brittleness uh, comes into uh, that's what we call it, like network brittleness, right? The trombone okay. issue is because either state is kept someplace or a route is kept someplace. That's the reason okay. you're tromboning traffic, right? Well, you don't have to worry about that necessarily if you're just doing pure v6 addresses with, that are globally accessible. So it becomes much easier to sort of address that need requirement. So I think that's 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 one of the unique value propositions that's sort of there for v6, and there are others, but it's it's one of them that you can definitely take advantage of. And you can do that either with an overlay or an underlay. So you get the advantage in both in both configurations because you can have a globally reachable address as an overlay too, on top of an underlay that has the exact same characteristics. The underlay may be managed and orchestrated by your provider and your provider may lock down what global address range can access it from a resource perspective to push net new services onto which is nice because it can be the same 32 that you run your services on, on top of the exact same box. And guess what? Because of the route characteristics, you can literally go up. Just the only tromboning you will have is on the service provider network. That's it. Right. And then you're, then you're, then you're maybe crossing the radio network or something like that. The other nice thing about that is you could conceivably stay inside of the radio network. You, you could conceivably stay if if you're doing the right thing with the firm appearance perspective, just like what Amazon and Azure provide, and it's bring your own address. You could assign a 48 to the provider to run in that edge location, and then you would never egress out of it. All right, because it would we, be in we, this local route table. Because <laughs> the 48, I'm, the, I'm going to call. I mean, we we've got to wrap up. The, this the challenge of any conversation I have with you, Ed, is that I end up with more questions. Like the longer it goes, the more like I'm like, oh, I didn't like it's it's this the onion get doesn't get smaller as you peel the layers, it gets bigger. It's this crazy meta onion. Um, <laughs> well, networking. Thank you. This is <laughs> of course always illuminating, and there's it, it's it's amazing to me because there's so much opportunity to improve the the way we think about networking right there. And yeah, we I, just I, don't know. I think there's a huge opportunity. I mean, the right company that comes along that helps with a bunch of this sort of stuff um, is going to be is going to be well positioned. Uh, we're we're just trying to help just advocate around the V6 side of just getting people to realize how they can use it as a tool, and that's all it is. It's another tool in your tool belt. Um, it just just so happens, you know, that you have an infinite number of nails now as opposed to the limited ones you have with V with V4 <laughs> to put something together. How's that? So now, if we only had an infinite number of hammers. Well, you know, that's what a pneumatic gun is for. <laughs> well played. All right, everybody. Thank you. Um, I have a backup topic for next Thursday, which was the um, S3 bucket API stuff. But if somebody has something else and they want to come through, um, I'm, I'm just, I know I have speakers. I just aren't not organized yet. So ping me in the back channel or propose it through Mighty Networks and we'll get things scheduled out for next um, week. You should, 
you should have Cricket Lou on to talk about Dot and Doe. It, 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 can you do an introduction and then we'll, we'll bring it yeah. up? Yeah, yeah. Or Cricket? Yeah, I, can get, I can get Cricket on. That's awesome. No Please do. I'd love to. That, I'm super Actually, I was, I was trying to get Cricket through my, uh, my brother, who's a good friend of Cricket. <laughs> yeah, I, I, so I write for the Infoblox IPv6 Center of Excellence. So Cricket. Oh, excellent. My blog posts and everything else. So yeah, not a problem. Yeah. I'll, Tell I'll him to pick, him pick a Tuesday afternoon and yeah I love it yeah. well yeah, he always he always enjoys talking about that stuff <laughs> we'll give him an hour thank you all cool have a good day all right ciao uh so welcome everybody we're getting starting to collect i'm still getting all my uh my act together so it's hallway time how are people doing Exciting. <laughs> I, I, Ed, I definitely tried to stir things up on uh, Mark and I both. I think on uh, on Twitter for for you in advance of this conversation. So, yeah, too funny. Hopefully the audio is okay. Let me know if you want me to switch to my podcast setup. So I think you sound good. Okay, you sound fine. Do us comfortable. Uh, that's more important. All right, all that looks good. I'm almost back and rolling. Uh, the demo guys have been like cursing me this week. I've, it's just been insane. They are. Even stuff I think is, I've got in the bag. Uh, not, not that easy. Um, I do have some housekeeping just from a, for these, I've been, as you know, for this event, we started on a rack end page and I've been slowly moving things over into the 2030 cloud um, uh, system and there's an events page. So uh, if you check out the events, then we can I'll post those. And I'm trying to get the schedule set um, in advance on both of those pages so people can find and link more easily. But if you uh, please help spread the word about the events. And then if you're somebody's looking to come in at the last minute events dot uh, .2030.cloud. If I did everything right, it should actually take you straight to the events page. And I actually am starting to like my networks more and more, 2030.cloud. So, other tech news? Did uh, people have any thoughts about uh, Snowflake's IPO? Other news, we got a ton of people on. I haven't paid any attention to Snowflake news. Does anybody use Snowflake? Some people must, right? <laughs> Some of us have never even heard of it. <laughs> I've heard of it, but I have no idea what they do. <laughs> no, they have, <clears throat> they have an awesome sweetheart deal. Microsoft on Azure because Bob Muglia used to run Snowflake and he did this amazing deal with them. So they their data costs are really, really, really low. So anyway, it's the last the last gasp of big data. How about that? Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about them as a big data play. Huh. That's what they are, right? I, 
I thought of them as a distributed database, but the oh god, yet another, <laughs> yet another distributed I'm, database. Yeah, how many are there? I, this is very elite group you've assembled, Rob. You know, you must amongst this group, you should be able to count the distributed databases. <laughs> <laughs> But why would we want to? <laughs> right. Why would you want to? I, it, it's one of those, this is one of the, funny, I don't know a lot of people who are, I'm sure they've got top drawer customers. And if it's big data, it makes more sense to me. I always just thought of them as a data warehouse shop, but whatever. I mean, yeah, that's kind of what I thought. But we, we're probably doing them a huge disfavor. We should, you should get them on, let us shine you or whatever. <laughs> I, I, I would think so. So, so part of what, what we've been doing is uh, we've been airing these sessions on Latest Shiny. Um, and I, I, I'm, this is enough time. So I, we're more or less, these are becoming the Latest Shiny uh, yeah. podcast episodes. Um, this is a cool yes, venue, same, by the way. It's, sorry? It's, this is a cool venue. I like the way this is structured. Thank you. Good. So it's, it's fun. Yeah, but if you have people who we want to get on, if, does anybody have a Snowflake contact? I would love to hear what they're doing. They're probably busy with S1 filings and stuff. But. Yeah, they probably can't talk. <laughs> oh, well. um, but yeah, nice. that would, it would be good to get some, some details. It's, it's a, their S1 is basically free marketing, I think, at this point. But. It's like cloudera.next, right? Oh, I, <laughs> I, you know, we could go back. There was, um, who was it? There was, we, we had a chat about um, next generation HPC, HPC V2. Um, that was you, Patrick? Okay. He's working on Sorry, I'm chewing on lunch. No, you're eating lunch. That's, that's cool. Um, no, um, and uh, yeah, he, um, um, he actually agreed to, uh, to, to the, Time frame that you stated. Um, awesome. I haven't uh, had a chance to email you back, but <laughs> I do want Brian Kentrell to come in. Um, by the way, that's uh, the uh, hardware. Uh, shoot, Jess, Jess Frizzell and Brian, right, working together on the the new Hexabel. No, that's you, Ed. What's the What's name this? of their company? For who? Jesse Frizzell, and uh, I'm looking at the chat, Brian Kentrell. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, I can't remember the name of their, their shop that they just started, but they're, yeah, what they're working on for the metal. <laughs> yes. Uh, let's see. And Greg, Gregory Kurtzner is the gentleman um, who's going to speak about uh, next gen HPC. Brian's company is Oxide Computing. Yeah. Hmm? Oxide, exactly. Oxide, yeah. Yeah, if um, somebody Smart has to reach people. out to them. I've been meaning to, but we've been had enough guests, so I haven't I haven't done my reach out to them yet. Actually, it I think it'll be a great bunch to get hold of because they must be doing something interesting. And knowing them, they have a, a cool angle. <laughs> they definitely have a cool angle. Although it's a little little nebulous, I, I admire the chutzpah of of trying to rebuild uh, servers. I know right. just how much <laughs> goes into in this day and age. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, I think that was, they're on my, they're on my list. I've been looking for somebody who has a strong connection to pull, pull them in. And I'm also open invitation to everybody on the call, um, trying to uh, leave room for other people to invite guests and, and speak. So uh, my goal is not to be, not, not to book up through December in this or in the Cloud 2030, in the Cloud 2030 session. Uh, and for the Cloud 2030 session, this Thursday is going to be about mission and topics. So I have to do a little bit more prep, but Tim Crawford and I talked talk mission a bit so that people know what, what the strategy is and to keep it um, futury. Futury? Futury. Well, it's... Uh, um, what is <laughs> well, so so what I what I, my hope is for this for our conversation here, we can be like totally tactical, right? I love this. Like, all right, I want to know what what Snowflake is doing. Pull somebody in and let's talk about it. Um, for the twenty thirty, the goal is the so what. So it's like, well, is you know, ten years from now, is Snowflake doing something that's going to be market change change the way we think about computing who's doing you know what's going yeah. on this this changing market and so you, you sort of have to have a, a framework that lifts people out of the you know you know we did this with the open source one we tried to do it with the open source one last week it was like yeah we're talking about open source and i know you're pissed about the cncf and openstack foundations but i i don't know that i care anymore um, or will care. So what is, how do you pull that conversation into what do we know today, but what, you know, what's, what, what's building on top of it, not just what I'm frustrated about working or not working. So that's the topic for Thursday. I'm thinking ahead. It should be, if you like the meta conversation, it'll be a good one. If you don't like the meta conversation, then stay back. <laughs> it'll just make your teeth grind. Lots of navel gazing on that one. I, it's, you know, I don't mind diving into a conversation and, and figuring it out as we go, just like we're going to do it the IPv6 stuff. But it does help keep us from wasting an hour because somebody was on a rant about um, you know, the Linux Foundation. So why don't you care up? Because you just think it's kind of a storm in a teacup. Uh, about the, which, care on which side? Because there were oh, two the levels Linux Foundation that. and all that stuff. Um, it's not the thing that came up for that was it wasn't clear that they were doing more than protecting the interests of big companies right. at this point. And so the, the question, the question we talked about in last session, and we're definitely going to have more open source conversations was what's driving innovation or disruption or change in the market. Mm -hmm. And, and open source is not, is not, a, it's, it's not working as a commercial model that's creating big, big wins for people in the future, right? Everybody's sort of like, ah, this, the idea of, of an open source company becoming, going public is, would defy conventional wisdom today. Um, I take it you don't consider HashiCorp to be open source in the same way? 
I, I do not consider them to be open source. Right. <clears throat> I don't either. Yeah. No. is a freemium uh, model, not, not, yeah. not fully open source. Exactly. Exactly. No, I'm just, I was just curious how everyone's, you know, I mean, they obviously work on an open source model, but it doesn't but, necessarily mean they, they operate an open source, you know, revenue generating business, right? So. They, they definitely do. And there, I think the HashiCorp model is one thing to talk about, but that's no, what, so. But the HashiCorp model is quite an old one, right? I mean, yeah. it's, I'm kind of surprised this still works actually, which is kind of cool. Good for them. Yeah, five, what is it? Five billion? Well, it's, uh, yeah. it's tried and true to, to, to play it that way. Yeah, you're right. Tried and true. But you, so, yeah, so, <laughs> you know, MongoDB would be next up, right? All right. So, Simon, I'm going to, as much as I want to dive deep into this, into that topic, I do, I want to, I want to, uh, uh, sure. watching, watching the time, I want to dive into the IPv6 which is our advertised agenda. And I, I hooked Ed in um, to, to go deep on it. And it's, I think, equally, um, if not more fascinating sometimes. So, Ed, Oh, no, I'll so, go down that. I'll go down the same raffle Simon's going down. Go for it. <laughs> but, but I'm happy to talk to these things, obviously. Can, can you give us a video just because I'm competing with my kids? Sorry. No worries. So, Ed, can you give us a little bit of background and then? You know, however you want to tee up the conversation, please do. Yeah, I, you want background on me or you just want background on me? A little bit of background on you would just help people who don't know you as well as I do. Sure. 